Hey, everybody, this is Bob. This is Brad. And we just want to tell you really quick, we are starting a series of movies this week about musicians, about people who make music. Brad, tell them what movies we have coming down the pipeline for them. Bob, I am so excited for this little miniseries we're doing. We're getting into Walk the Line, This is Spinal Tap, Bohemian Rhapsody, and what's the fourth one? Well, Brad, the fourth one is going to be a listener special. What? I know. If you head on over to our social media accounts, especially Instagram, you will see that we have offered a few movies for you to select. We really liked doing this a few months ago when we did the episode on Babe. And so we want our fourth movie about musicians to be selected by you. So please head on over to our social media. You can find it especially prominently on our Instagram page and cast your vote for the movie that you would like to see for the fourth week of our miniseries. Man, it's almost like we want to know what you have to say, Foma Whiskey Nation. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode. In 2005, director James Mangold and star Joaquin Phoenix gave the world a captivating chronicle of country music legend Johnny Cash. In 2020, we take a trip down memory lane to revisit an early favorite bourbon. The film is Walk the Line. The whiskey is Woodford Double Oaked. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are looking at the 2005 film, Walk the Line. Brad, we are wrapping up our little mini-series of movies from 2005. We looked at Brokeback Mountain. We looked at Crash. Today, we're looking at a movie that was also nominated for quite a few Oscars, the musical biopic, Walk the Line, uh, about the story of Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. I'm really excited to talk about this one, Brad. And, you know, I feel like every once in a while... I have to break down a little bit. You know, we say that we're reviewing a classic movie when we get into each episode. And I feel like classic might be a little bit of a stretch for this movie. You know, it's it's definitely not making anybody's top 100 of all time list. It was a big hit, but it wasn't like a juggernaut at the box office. And so I will fully admit, Brad, we are reviewing this movie for two basic reasons. Reason number one is it is a nice bridge from us to come out of talking about movies from 2005 into the next series we're going to do, which is movies about musicians. The next few weeks on the podcast, we will be looking at movies about people who make music. And the second reason is I just like this movie and I I thought it'd be fun to talk about. So is it a classic? Sure, because we said it was. Because I said so. That's right. Yeah, man. Well, and beyond that fact, let's be really honest. Johnny Cash is one of the greatest musical legends ever to live. Oh, absolutely. So, like, it it feels pretty, pretty obvious that we should start our, you know, little mini series on musical biopics with, you know, with the legend himself, Johnny Cash. Well, and I think you bring up a good point, too, Brad. We haven't done a ton of biopics on the show. In fact, I'm I'm really struggling to think about any right now. I'm sure we've done a couple. But. This genre or this, I guess, subgenre of movie, the musical biopic, is I feel like we're getting a movie every year that's about some legendary performer and their life story. And we're actually going to see a movie in a few weeks here during our little mini series uh, in our bad movie bonus. 
that is also a musical biopic. But I think of of all the movies that we could have picked to kind of fill this role and represent this genre, this is definitely my favorite one. And I think it also really does a good job of exemplifying both the good and the bad of a musical biopic. Because while there's a lot of good things going on in this movie, I think it also has like every cliche of the genre represented here. Yeah, the the thing with this movie, Bob, is that there were multiple points throughout the film where I was just kind of bored. Like, like I, I hate to say it, but they probably could have trimmed about 20 to 25 minutes off the movie because there were certain scenes that just kind of went on longer than they needed to. I think that the musical scenes, while they were great, and I love Johnny Cash, and I think Joaquin Phoenix did an amazing job of sounding like Johnny Cash, in the end, I, I just kind of felt like we kind of hit a few walls in the movie story-wise. And at those points, you know, James Mangold was like, you know what we'll do here? We'll put in another Johnny Cash song. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think that I was really bored at all in this movie. For me, it was the thing of like, I knew exactly where the story was going. Not because I know what Johnny Cash's life was like, but because I've seen enough of these musical biopics to know that it's like, Oh, you grew up poor. Oh, you got famous. Oh, you got hooked on drugs. And then the end of the movie is going to be your, you know, your redemption when you get clean. That's like every movie ever made about a rock and roll musician, or in this case, a country musician, follows those numbers. And I do think this is a really paint by numbers kind of movie. But the thing is, I think that the performances are so captivating and the the chemistry and the sexual tension between Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon in this movie is so palpable that it like it, it's captivating to watch. And it never made me bored as a result of that. <laughs> Bob, I feel like you just said the words sexual tension like a 48 year old dad. <laughs> I mean, I basically am a 48 year old dad at this point, pretty much. But the the movie really does have a lot of great parts to it. And, and I, I think that you pointed out the key thing, Bob. Joaquin Phoenix gives a great performance. Reese Witherspoon, great performance. Jennifer Goodwin, great performance. I, I mean, all across the board, I think you have people who do a really wonderful job at, at depicting characters who are complex, who are nuanced, who are interesting. And and I think that, you know, even within the paint by numbers, hey, he did drugs. Hey, he cheated on his wife. Hey, he's divorced now. Like, you know, all of those things, it all boils down to the fact that Johnny Cash is a spectacular musical legend. And even if his story is similar to a lot of other musicians who go through the same kind of cycle of of struggle and tragedy, the dude was just awesome. And June Carter was, you know, amazing. She was an amazing performer. And so not only do we get to see, you know, I, I don't think this is just a biopic of Johnny Cash, but it's also a biopic for June Carter. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I really, really enjoy where the movie takes you by the end of it. Well, Brad, for those who have not seen the movie and might be unfamiliar with this story, I think it's time that we segue into our favorite segment, America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. This is the part of the show where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time seeing Walk the Line? This was my absolute first time seeing Walk the Line. Well, then this should be a good one, folks. Brad, will you break down for our listeners, in a spoiler-filled fashion, the plot of the movie Walk the Line? Walk the Line is a biopic about the musical legend star Johnny Cash. 
It starts with him uh, recording his famous live album at Folsom Prison and quickly flashes back to to him as a child. Um, He experiences childhood trauma while living in the deep south in deep poverty. His brother uh, dies while trying to saw some wood. And his father is a mean drunk, and his mother teaches him how to sing from the hymnals. And we see him slowly work his way up to become a country music star. He, he's in the Air Force in Germany for a while, and he, he marries his childhood sweetheart, Vivian. They have a few kids together. He comes back. He's trying to make money as a salesman. And he finally is able to you know, catch a big break as his band takes off uh, singing songs that he wrote during his time in the Air Force. From here on out, he meets June Carter, who is uh, part of the family Carter, which was a a traveling singing family um, back in the 50s and 60s. And the dude, I mean, it's crazy, man. He gets to tour with Elvis Presley, which I I guess I just didn't know that about Johnny Cash. That's just awesome. So it's Johnny and Elvis and June, and they're all running around singing and, and doing all their things. And he basically falls in love with June Carter. He gets hooked on pills, uh, you know, about halfway to three quarters of the way through the movie. Um, he is completely addicted. He gets caught trying to smuggle pills back across the border. Uh, his wife, Vivian, divorces him. And from there on out, you see June Carter really step into his life uh, pretty much like an angel and helps him turn his life around, gets him away from the drugs and draws him into a, a more loving, healthy, mature relationship. And the movie ends with him proposing on stage, and uh, and there you have it. They they get married and live happily ever after. They certainly do, Brad. It really is a, a great story, true story. And as we get into talking about the movie, Brad, I think I want to start with kind of how the film begins. We have this sort of framing device of Johnny Cash getting ready to go out on stage and perform what would become his most iconic album at Folsom Prison. And then it flashes back to his childhood. And we get to see what causes Cash to kind of tick, what causes his really deep-seated anger and frustration and bitterness towards towards everyone around him. And it has to do with the death of his brother at a very young age, and it has to do with the fact that his dad, like you said, is a mean drunk uh, who also blames Johnny Cash for the death of his brother and also very explicitly says that he thinks that the wrong kid got killed. And... I really, really loved the inclusion of that at the beginning, even if it does seem a little bit, again, paint by numbers. A little heavy handed. It was also a little heavy handed for sure. But I I do think that as soon as we cut to the adult, you know, Joaquin Phoenix version of Johnny Cash, you have a really clear sense of why he carries himself the way he does, why he pushes people away what this sort of like FU attitude is that he carries with him everywhere. And I noticed it almost immediately when he's going off to join the Air Force and he's saying goodbye to his mom and to his sister. And then his dad basically just looks at him and says, like, you're going to miss your bus. And he has this look on his face. And the only word that I could write down that described it for me that Joaquin Phoenix had was a snarl. It was just like a he looked so bitter. And I think. Phoenix does such a great job in this movie of conveying not just that Johnny Cash is angry at everybody, but that he is at his core a really sensitive person. And I think he has some really deep seated hurts and he does a great job of not making Cash seem like a jerk, but making him seem like a really wounded person. And I think, you know, kind of that balancing act, it can be really, really hard to do. And he pulls it off very well. Bob, I will say this. 
I never once believed that it was Johnny Cash on screen. Like, like I'm sure that he did a great job of portraying his emotions and, and, and all of those things. But, you know, when I watch a movie like A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks, like, I know that it's Tom Hanks, and yet I forgot about it quickly, you know, when we got into the movie, because he felt like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> there was just something about Joaquin Phoenix that felt like Joaquin Phoenix the entire film. And, and I just, I like I said, I like his performance. I don't think it's bad. I just don't know if he was the right choice for the role because I never once could stop thinking about the fact that he was Joaquin Phoenix. You know, this is why I love discussing movies with you, Brad, because, you know, I don't really have like a personal stake in this movie. It's a movie that I enjoy and, you know, it came out in my teenage years and it really hit me in a certain way when I was a teenager and I like it. But I'm willing to have this kind of conversation about it because I think that it worked really, really well and I was able to get lost in the performance. When you're watching movies in this subgenre, the musical biopic, I think that there are really like two camps they can fall into. There's the actors who really try to do an imitation or an impression of the person that they're playing. And then there's people who try to capture, I guess, you know, I'm going to sound super pretentious when I say this, but like, you know, try to capture their essence. Like they know they don't look like them. They know they don't sound like them. And so it's more about like, can I get the mannerisms down? Can I get the overall attitude down? And when when I think about Walk the Line, the closest comparison would be a movie that came out one year before this called Ray about the life of Ray Charles. And I think that that movie is even more cliched and more heavy handed than this one is. Um, but the actor that played Ray Charles was Jamie Foxx, and he won an Oscar for that movie. And he does a really great job in that film. But one of the things that Jamie Foxx did really well was he learned how to do the most accurate impression and imitation of Ray Charles that I think anyone's ever seen. In in some scenes, the way that he sings the songs, the looks on his face, the the motions of his mouth, it looks exactly like Ray Charles. Like you you could take a still image of that and convince someone that was actually Ray Charles. You don't get that in this movie. And I think what Phoenix does, and I think wisely so, is he doesn't try to do the Johnny Cash voice too much. He's not tipping into imitation. I think he's trying to capture like something else about him. And I thought that was a really wise choice. And for me, it worked a lot better than if he had been like the guy who played Elvis in this movie, who was just trying to capture like, hey, I'm Elvis and, you know, doing the Elvis voice. I think if he had leaned more into the imitation side of things, it would have been an, a way worse performance than it actually was. I'm glad you brought up the Elvis guy because... He felt like a fake Elvis person trying to be Elvis. Mm -hmm. I like I legitimately for had to look up like on IMDb to see if like Elvis was in the movie because I was like, wait a second, that 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 guy can't be playing Elvis because he's doing a terrible job of it. <laughs> but I think with I think with Joaquin, I I don't think you're wrong. I, I think that there is an essence of Johnny Cash that does get distilled in Joaquin's performance. But I guess maybe what I'm saying is maybe I do want my biopic performer to look something like the performer that, you know, he's trying to play. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I, I just want the best of both worlds, Bob. <laughs> I understand that impulse, Brad. Yeah. But on the other side of things, I, I really do think from what I have learned and, you know, I, I obviously don't know much about June Carter. I've watched a few videos of her performing back in the day. and. I really do think that Reese Witherspoon 
captures, I would say, the essence, the sass of June Carter, along with, I I would say she looks somewhat like her as well. But I'm also not as familiar with June Carter's look as I am with Johnny Cash, so I probably am not noticing it nearly as, as much. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. I will say, Brad, that I think that what Reese Witherspoon does in this movie is like a small miracle, to be quite honest with you, because on the surface of it, you know, she wins an Oscar for this movie. And I think it's really easy to look at what this movie is, the kind of movie it is, the fact that it's not a perfect film and just say like, oh, it must have been a down year. You know what I mean? Like it must have been like Sandra Bullock when she won for the blind side. Like, yeah, you know, Sandra, Sandra Bullock's... Well, listen to me. Oh, hold on. Pulling out the Sa- big guns against Sandy I think Sandra, B. I think Sandra Bullock's a fantastic actress, and I think she deserved the Oscar for Gravity. But what I'm saying is, I think when people look at movies like The Blind Side and this, there's this, like, really snobbish sort of judgment that people say. Like, oh, how did, you know, how did she win for Walk the Line? But when you actually look at the performance, she gives this character so much heart and so much depth And you can tell that her actual personality, June Carter, was very feisty and very charming. But you can also tell that she knows how to work a crowd. She knows how to charm the hell out of anyone. And, you know, behind closed doors, she carries some of that personality with her. But you see what it what she looks like when the curtain goes down. And I think that could have been a performance that in the hands of another actress really could have tipped into the like showy over-the-top kind of performance. And Reese Witherspoon really, really anchors this character down. We got a show at 2, a matinee. You remember that? We're just practicing. Oh, come on, June. Sit down. Slick here. Not today, Jerry Lee. Why not? Because you're drunk. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Come on, June. Just come have a beer with us. I'm going home tonight after the show. I'm not here to look after y'all. You're not. You got somebody to do that for you, John. You got a wife somewhere. You remember that? Uh What if I didn't? There's too many ifs in that sentence. Only one, actually. There's only one if in that sentence, June. (laughs) Uh, That's always a good point. There's only one. And I think that, like... Honestly, I was blown away and I've seen this movie, I don't know, 10 times, but really trying to watch for the nuances of the performance this time around. I think she deserved every bit of that Oscar that she won. Well, the beauty of her performance is that she comes across as an everyday person Mm -hmm. when she's not on stage. And I think the dichotomy of her onstage persona versus who she is just sitting at the diner talking to Johnny about his childhood there's there's this grounding that happens because of how genuine she is. This is something I've talked about in the past, but I, there's sometimes certain actors are able to portray characters just so, with so much genuineness that it just draws me in and attaches me to who they are. And I think that Reese Witherspoon exemplifies that in this movie. And I I absolutely genuinely think that hers was my absolute favorite performance in this film. Brad, I'm really glad you brought up that scene where they're in the diner. It's right when Johnny Cash first joins that tour. And he's telling her all about how he grew up listening to her music. And she asks him, you know, are you really are you tired? 
And he just has this really heavy look and he nods his head and she's so reassuring. And I think, you know, especially like she comes up and she has this very husky voice because her voice is gone. That scene is such a small, intimate scene in the middle of a movie about people who live their lives on stage. And I appreciated it so much because I thought the dialogue was great. The performances were incredible. And just the, the sort of ballsiness it took to put that scene in the middle of the movie. I thought everything about that scene was pitch perfect. Well, and I, I think that they needed a few more scenes like that. You know, mm. we we get some really good scenes of, you know, Johnny Cash being on drugs and being angry. You know, the scene where he pulls the sink out of the wall was totally unscripted. He just did that on his own. And, and so there's scenes like that that you kind of see the depravity and the brokenness that his childhood has caused him, that these pills are causing him. But for some reason, man, I wanted more of those scenes where you just got to see June Carter being June Carter, you know, uh, just just a normal human being. Those scenes were so captivating for me, you know, and I guess maybe I'm being a little unfair because you do have a few more. You you have her in the supermarket helping Johnny pick out a gift for his daughter and, and things like that. And when she comes to Thanksgiving and. So you see her in those moments, but I, I don't know. I just wanted more. I, I thought she was so good in this film. And I think that I'm with you. I think I could have used more of them falling in love, you know, over against all the scenes of him using drugs. But even with the small amount of scenes that we got, Brad, I don't know that I've ever seen two characters or two actors that have this much palpable chemistry throughout the movie in a sense that the movie relies on their chemistry. Like if you had two actors in this film that weren't firing on all cylinders and didn't have that tension between them, this movie would fall completely flat because so much of it is about that slow build to the moment they finally, you know, give in to their temptations. They admit that they're in love with each other and, and the fallout from that. But it only works because both of these actors have such incredible chemistry with each other. And I don't know if I'm alone in thinking that, Brad, but uh, for me, I really thought that they hit the jackpot, you know, or they struck gold here uh, with the two leads in terms of how their chemistry worked on screen. Well, and the beautiful thing about that chemistry is that it, it kind of puts Jennifer Goodwin, you know, who plays his first wife, Vivian, in a shadow you see that shadow come out when, you know, Johnny is putting up pictures of his band and she's, you know, she grabs the picture that's just of June and mm -hmm. smashes it. And they get into a, a huge fight where Johnny almost, you know, hits Vivian. And, and I think that the chemistry you see between Joaquin and Reese creates this awkwardness between Johnny and Vivian that kind of lets you get on June and, you know, June and Johnny's side sure. more so than Johnny and Vivian. Brad, I'm glad you brought up Jennifer Goodwin, too, because of any of the performances in this movie that I've ever seen criticism of, I have seen some people that didn't like her performance. And I think it's because she is kind of written very broad, like she's just the angry wife and she's not given a ton to work with. But honestly, especially on this watch through, I think I watched her performance more critically than anyone else's because I wanted to figure out, is she good? Is she bad in this movie? Brad, I think she's really, really good. And I think that her reactions to what's going on around her are completely justified. I think that the decisions she makes as an actress to convey those emotions are all completely justified. I don't think she's chewing scenery. I don't think she's over the top. Everything still felt really grounded to me and realistic. And I thought Jennifer Goodwin did a great job. 
I was going to say, if there's any problem with the chemistry that Johnny and June have in this movie, it's the fact that it might make you think that Johnny is less of a jerk for the stuff he put Vivian through. Mm -hmm. And I think that Jennifer Goodwin just was spectacular at portraying a woman who was drawn somewhat reluctantly into a relationship and then discarded for another person. Like, like she just pulls that off so, so well. I genuinely loved her performance. And once again, you know, we talked about how this movie is kind of paint by numbers, but I would say the lead three performers, Joaquin, Reese, and Jennifer, all three of them knock it out of the park. Yeah, for sure, Brad. And I think this is a good place for us to stop and to try our whiskey for the day before we get into maybe some of our nitpicks with the episode in the, in the latter half. But before we get there, let's stop here and let's try this Woodford Reserve Double Oaked. What do you say? Let's get to it. Also, we just added our very own official Discord page, so if you are a gamer who's on Discord, go to our anchor.fm webpage, and you can find a link to our Discord there. Yeah, it's in all of the show notes. Uh, it's, it's really easy to see, so even if you're just listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts right now, pull up the show notes for this episode. There will be an invite to our Discord server there. All right, so today we are trying Woodford Reserve Double Oaked. Brad, this is the second time in just a few weeks that we have taken a walk down memory lane together. We tried Eagle Rare a few weeks ago when we looked at Citizen Kane, and this week we're looking at Double Oaked, which was the bourbon that made me fall in love with bourbon. When we were living in Kentucky, the first distillery tour that I ever did was Woodford Reserve, and at the end of that tour, they gave you a small sample of, you know, regular Woodford, and then they gave you a small sample of Double Oaked. And Woodford is not the first distillery ever to do a barrel-finished whiskey. But for some reason, their Double Oaked really caught fire. And it I feel like it kind of vaulted them even higher in terms of people's respect for them when this whiskey came out. It was really one of the only ones at the time that was doing a sort of, you know, quote-unquote Double Oaked process, which we're going to talk about in a second here. And I remember when I tried that whiskey for the first time, man, I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, I can drink this other stuff, but this Double Oaked, this is something special. This is something different. And it's what made me want to keep trying whiskeys after that. Yeah, Haley got this for my birthday hmm, probably three or four years ago now. And holy cow, Bob, this is one of the whiskeys that it's like the reason I drink whiskey. Yeah. I love this stuff so much. Um, I'm excited to get into it for the podcast. I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised we've made it halfway through season three before, you know, trying it. But I, I'm super pumped about it. It's delicious. It's tasty. It's double oaked, which I still don't really know what that means. But I don't really <laughs> care because it's real good. It is really good. So the double oaked thing means this. 
Uh, they take their regular Woodford Reserve bourbon, which has been aged, as we know, in new charred American oak barrels, and they put it into a second new charred American oak barrel. Uh, the second barrel, what they do is they actually have a process where they toast the barrel first and then they char it. So it's a slightly different kind of charring that they get on the inside. But what was unique about Woodford Double Oaked, which came out, I think, in like 2012, is that, you know, there were other companies that were finishing whiskey in barrels, but they were almost always finished in used barrels. Like you'd get a used wine barrel and you'd finish it in that. Woodford was really the first one that said, no, we're going to use a completely new second barrel as well so that we can extract as much possible additional flavor as we can. So they take it out of the first barrel, they put it in this brand new second barrel, and they age it for about another year. And they were one of the first to really do that. And I think that that gamble has paid off pretty handsomely for them. Well, all you have to do is take a take a nose of this and know that it has paid off handsomely. Yeah, I mean, Brad, this is like everything that we love on a bourbon. And it's the thing is, it's not overpowering. It's just like that that additional barrel has just enhanced all the great scents that you get. There is some obviously some oak on this, a little bit of that char, but then it's just like vanilla, 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 vanilla. And, you know, a little bit of maybe some caramel or brown sugar. But it's like if you could make a scent that was just called classic bourbon, this would be it. It's not a ton of alcohol. It's just a, an incredibly pleasant nose to sip or to sniff. Just sip it right up your nose. That's right. <laughs> hey, don't question how I drink my whiskey, man. <laughs> it's 2020, man. You choose how to just be, drink your whiskey how you want to. <laughs> Bob, this nose is perfect. Um, I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten. Wow. <laughs> I just love this nose. It's warm. It's caramely. It's tons of vanilla. There's almost a hint of like marshmallow on it. Mm. It's just spectacular. I can't think of many bourbons that have a better nose. No, it's a, it's a great one. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. And I'll say this before we take a sip. You know, with Eagle Rare, I felt like my my opinion of it came crashing down to earth a little bit. I, so I'm slightly nervous to try this, Brad, because it's been a couple years since I've had it. But if if it's anything like this nose, I think that we are in good hands here. So let's give this a sip. Oh, man, that is so smooth. Man, right when that hits the tip of my tongue, I get a little bit of that deep oak and a lot of that sweet vanilla. Like there, there's those vanilla tones that kind of underlie everything that's going on. I feel like it almost has a sense of like a like a like a dried fruit to it. There's that oakiness, there's vanilla. This is a tasty tasty palate, Bob. I'm going to give it an 8 and a half out of 10 on the palate. Wow. Yeah, Brian, I think we're actually going to uh, diverge a little bit here because for me this wasn't nearly as sweet as I was expecting it to be. I thought it would have some of those great caramely notes right on the tip of my tongue you get some alcohol tingle and then as you kind of kick it to the back of your mouth uh, is, there's definitely oak to it, but it's not unsweet. There's definitely like a vague sweetness to it, but it's not vanilla heavy to me. It's not caramel or brown sugar. It's just kind of a a more oak heavy bourbon without that underlying vanilla that we had on the nose. So you're picking it up. I'm not really getting it as much. It wasn't nearly as sweet as I would have liked it to be. I'm actually only going to give this a six and a half on the taste. Ooh, Robert. I man, I I will agree with you that the sweetness isn't as heavy as I thought it might be from the nose, but I like that. I I think the the more I think about it, 
this bourbon ha- it's deep and it's dark on on the palate and i really like that taste and flavor so that's why i gave it an eight and a half mm. i think when you get to the finish though is where this really shines yep. like the the finish on this whiskey is I, bob there's only one word for it it's smooth there's a nice mellow warmth that sits on your on your throat it's not harsh it doesn't burn too much it's just a nice little thing that I think if you had to define the word Kentucky hug, it would be with this bourbon. Brad, I'm curious. Are you drinking this out of a Glencairn? I am. I am as well. And I'm not getting a lot of what you're picking up today. So we must just be in, in different places today. I don't really get much of a Kentucky hug, which I also like. I, I think that there's definitely like a a warming kind of sensation on the way down, but there's no burn. There's no chest burn. And I think that's what I really love about this. You swallow and it gives you like just a little pop of smoke uh, on the finish. And it's a, a lasting oak flavor on your palate and a really nice, pleasant kind of mellow warmth in your chest. So it, it lets you know it's there, but there's definitely no burn to it. Last week we tried Blanton's and that was the harshest chest burn I've ever had in a whiskey. And this is the complete opposite of that. It's a really nice sort of gentle warming sensation, but no burn at all. I really, really love the finish on this. I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of 10. Yeah, I already said how much I like this. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10 on the finish. Well, that takes us to overall balance. That's where we talk about nose, taste, and finish all put together. Does it marry well? Does it go from one to the other in a very smooth way? Or are there peaks and valleys? For me, I think the taste did take this down a peg, Brad, um, but the finish kind of tied that nose and the taste together to redeem it a bit. I'm going to give this a seven on balance. You know what? No, I'm going to give this a seven and a half. Bob, I'm going to give this an eight and a half on balance. I, I think this is a beautiful whiskey. It it tells you what it's going to do. You know, it's not it's maybe a little less sweet on the palate than it is on the nose, but that doesn't really bother me at all. There's lots of unique flavors. I think it's a complex whiskey that has a beautiful finish. I I think it's a really solidly balanced whiskey. I just took like my third sip of this and it really developed some great toffee notes on the finish as well. Uh, I think it's starting to open up a bit. And I would suspect that as I sip more of it and as I let it kind of open up in the glass, that my scores might change a little bit. Um, I will say I still think the taste was the low point here. I don't know if you'd agree with me on that, Brad. But the nose was almost perfect. The finish was very, very good. Uh, so, yeah, it just dipped a bit because of the taste. Well, and that brings us to our final category, which is value. You know, when we talk about a lot of unique whiskeys like this that come out of large companies, the prices can sometimes get insane. You know, you have these brands that everybody knows about. I think Buffalo Trace is the perfect example of this. You have things like Blanton's that the price just gets out just ridiculous out of bounds and it's prohibitive for so many people for woodford reserve double oaked in the state of ohio you're looking at 51 dollars 99 so a 52 dollar bottle of whiskey for what i would say would be a very high-end classy classic bourbon experience i'm gonna say this it's a little bit higher than i would want like in my mind, this should be like a thirty-eight to forty-two dollar bottle of whiskey, but fifty-one ninety-nine isn't too far above that. I I think it's a decent price. I'm gonna give it a six and a half out of ten on value. 
Yeah, so just a little bit more info about this this product. It comes in at 90.4 proof. I think it drinks a little bit hotter than 90 proof, Brad. Like I, I would have thought that this was in the 96 to 99 kind of a range. It, it used to retail for about $10 more than regular Woodford. And I think now it's probably up to about $13, $14 more than regular Woodford. But I don't think that it's unfairly priced, especially knowing like what the process is, that they're not dumping it into used barrels for its second, you know, doubling of the oak. They're using another new barrel. It's it's a more costly process for them. I think this is really fairly priced and it's just enough of a high shelf product that if you bought this for somebody for their birthday, it's a really solid gift. You know what I mean? Like this is not something that anyone would thumb their nose at. Everyone I know that drinks this likes it. It is a really, really solid whiskey. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on value. And that takes my final score to a 39 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you to? That takes me out to a 42 out of 50. So that brings our average to a 40.5 out of 50 or an 81 out of 100. This is right up there with the top whiskeys that we've had this season. I might have sounded a bit more negative on this than Brad did, but make no mistake. I love this whiskey. It is a really, really great whiskey. And for me, it holds a lot of nostalgia and sentiment. I don't know if it's the same for you, Brad, but this definitely held up better under scrutiny than Eagle Rare did a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think it did. You know, I I still love Eagle Rare. I still enjoy it. But you can tell that it's a $30 bottle of whiskey versus this being a $50 bottle of whiskey. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this is a spectacular value. I think that anytime you get a chance to drink this, go out and get it. I would highly recommend it for yourself. Like you said, Bob, as a gift for a friend, go get yourself some Woodford Reserve Double Oaked. Once again, we want to thank the Woodford Reserve Distillery for sending us these samples. Uh, If you want to hear more, listen to our episode from a few weeks ago where we interviewed master distiller Chris Morris and we sipped Double Oak while we did it. But Brad, I think for now, it's time for us to get back into talking about Walk the Line. What do you say? Let's get to it. Right, so that was Woodford Reserve Double Oaked, one of the highest ranked whiskeys that we have had this season and definitely a nostalgic favorite for me and Brad. But now we are getting back into talking about Walk the Line, a movie that I really like, and I'm still not sure where Brad falls on this. So, Brad, I think that we need to talk about the most important thing that this movie gave our culture, and that is the film Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story starring John C. Riley. A movie that they just put up on Netflix, and I stayed up till 3 in the morning watching the other night, because I finished Walk the Line, I happened to click out of HBO Max, and I turned on Netflix, and I saw Walk Hard, like, right there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen it, I've always wanted to. It was hilarious, but I think that it deserves mentioning because it is so clearly a parody of movies like this. It follows the exact same structure, 
It actually starts with John C. Riley getting ready to perform at a concert, just like Johnny Cash. And he's like facing the wall and a guy comes to get him and they're like, Mr. Cox, it's time to go on. And the guy pulls him aside and he's like, don't you know, Dewey Cox has to think about his entire life before he goes out and performs. <laughs> and they flash back to, you know, his his growing up in Alabama or whatever. It's such a funny movie, but I think it so accurately pinpoints what's wrong with this movie, Brad. And that is that for as great as the performances are, for as great as I think some of the camera work is in this movie, it ultimately follows a super cliched storyline. And I think that even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know exactly what happens in it, like beat by beat. And I guess I'm just wondering, Brad, for a guy that has only seen this movie once, how much of a knock on the movie is that? Like, does it still ultimately work for you? Or does the fact that it is so cliched take it down a couple notches? Well, Bob, I'm I'm going to point you to another movie to explain my answer. And it's actually a movie I haven't seen. I have heard lots of reviews of and I've heard your opinion of quite often. But that is Bohemian Rhapsody. And I guess in my mind, if if this was an accurate depiction of Johnny Cash's life, which from what I can tell it was then no, it does not bother me at all that it's a paint-by-numbers, you know, movie. Because if Johnny Cash's life was a paint-by-numbers, you know, rock star life, then I'm okay if they make a movie that reflects reality. You know, the, yeah. the big problem with Bohemian Rhapsody is that they literally made up half the movie. Right. Uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, apparently that means it was good because people threw money at it just straight out of their pockets. So I I don't know what to say about it. I like the fact that the movie stayed true to his life. You know, I was Googling during the movie, did Johnny Cash propose to June Carter on stage? Oh, guess what? He did. He actually mm. did that. That wasn't something they made up to spice up the movie. So for me, I do not mind at all if this movie falls into cliches. Yeah, Brad, I think I'm right there with you. I mean, there's a reason that we have, you know, the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll in, in the lexicon. It's not Johnny Cash's fault if every rock star that came after him had a very similar life. It's not Johnny Cash's fault that Ray Charles had a very similar life or that Elton John had a very similar life. Like, all the movies about these people follow the same beats because they're basically staying true to the story of what that person's life was like. And I do think that we're starting to finally get some movies where they're trying to creatively tell that story instead of going over the whole thing again and again. Honestly, Brad, for me, it feels like when I watch one of these movies, it's almost like every time they reboot Batman and you have to watch Batman's parents get shot again. It's like, we know we know the story now. You don't have to keep doing this. You don't have to keep killing Uncle Ben every time you make a Spider-Man movie. So, like, I appreciate that we're finally starting to get some creative ways of working around that. But I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing if a filmmaker chooses to just tell the story the way that it actually happened. And again, like, you know, are there parts of this movie that are just a little too cliched for me? Sure. But at the end of the day, Brad, I think the performances are what this movie is about. And I think the director really wisely leans into that. And he knows, like, the story is June and Johnny. And the more June and Johnny that we have on screen, the better of a movie it's going to be. Because I don't know another movie like this that has as strong of a love story as this one does. And that's where the movie really succeeds for me. Well, Bob, in the end, I think that the question you have to ask yourself as a moviegoer going into any sort of biopic 
is what do I want to see out of this movie? You know, is my goal to see a Citizen Kane of a film or is it to kind of catch some of the nostalgia, catch some of the vibes of a person that I loved? You know, if they make a biopic about Elvis Presley and the main star doesn't sound or look anything like Elvis, then people are going to be disappointed because they they want to see Elvis again. And I think that's where biopics, it's the crux of why they're good and yet why they struggle to be known as great films. Because in the end, you're just rehashing somebody's life that was really famous. The reason it's going to make money isn't because it's a great film. It's because the famous person was famous. So I, for me, I, I think that they did a spectacular job in this movie. I think that Johnny Cash is represented really well, even though I struggle to believe that it's not Joaquin Phoenix up there the whole time. I think June Carter does great. I think uh, Vivian is, is spectacular. So for me, I'm fine with it. I got to live with Johnny Cash for a little bit, got to hear his voice a little bit. I, I was satisfied. So, Brad, what would be your final score on this movie then? You know, I, I think I would give it... Man, I'm I'm honestly stuck in between a seven and a half or an eight. Like mm, I feel like I, am too. I feel like a seven and a half is kind of what it deserves. But you know what? I, I think I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten. I think it's a solid movie. I think it has a lot going for it. Is it perfect? No. Is it a little bit bland at certain points? Yes. But I like it. It's good. I love Johnny Cash. I am in the exact same boat as you. I think that, like, if I really wanted to put my critic glasses on and say, like, objectively, what is this movie? It's like a seven and a half, but it just worked so well for me. And the performances were just so darn charming that I think I'm also going to give it an eight out of ten. Now, like, are we comparing every eight out of ten movie that we gave to this? No, but like on its own merits and how much enjoyment I got out of it, it's an eight out of ten for me. And that means that our average was really easy to calculate this week, Brad. We we came out to an 8 out of 10. Even you could figure it out. That's right. But we want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks of this movie. So please, if you liked Walk the Line, if you didn't like Walk the Line, if you want to call us and quote the Dewey Cox story at us, you can do that by finding us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. You can leave us a voicemail and have your voice be heard on air. You can call us at 216-800-5923. Once again, the number is 216-800-5923. Or you can leave your voicemail on our anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey website. Next week, we're continuing our walk through movies about musicians with the 2000 film Almost Famous. So join us for that next week for the Film and Whiskey podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.